to Vonday Radio. Today I'm joined by Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones, it is honor to have you back on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back. Dr. Jones is an author, he's a historian, a lecturer, a journalist, and he's written books including Baron Metal, Libido Dominandi, Degenerate Moderns, and Logos Rising, a History of Ultimate Reality, his most recent tome. He is the editor of Culture Wars magazine whose slogan is No Social Progress Outside the Moral Order. Jones has been on the cutting edge of demystifying and analysing late modernity. I think we've all been aware of the, the turmoil in the modern world and the, the deepening crisis in the church. And it's very recently, in the last couple of weeks, that Archbishop Vigano, in one of his, his letters, came out strongly against what he called obvious errors within the Second Vatican Council. And he said, quote, beyond the ambiguous and discontinue, discontinuous formulations was wanted and conceived for its subversive value and which as such has caused so many evils. This also corresponds to the writings of Bishop Schneider, which identify a spirit of subjectivity with, and uh, anthropocentrism within the very documents of the Second Vatican Council. And Archbishop Vigano goes further and says that the mere fact that Vatican II is susceptible to correction ought to be su sufficient to declare its oblivion as soon as its most obvious errors are seen with clarity. And the historian Henry Sear wrote that the, the process of the convalescence and restoration of tradition would see the growth of the traditional movement and then a key moment would be that moment when conciliar bishops, bishops in, in full regular communion with the Holy See, actually decry the, the errors of the council 
um, explicitly and that that's a moment that we seem to have reached. If his analysis is correct then we're going to see a growing number of bishops criticising the council openly and a move towards uh, abandoning the conciliar project which could be called a concordat with the modern world or the liberal dispensation. Dr Jones, what is the nature of the crisis in the church today and what relationship does it have to the Second Vatican Council? The basis of the crisis is ignorance of history. And I'm going to include uh, uh, Archbishop Vagano in that indictment. Uh, Archbishop Vagano is blaming the victim here. He, he clearly does not understand what happened during Vatican II. He has no idea. He's barking up the wrong tree, uh, especially about uh, Freemasonry. He's holding Freemasonry accountable for what happened after Vatican II. Uh, Freemasons are guys, they, they wear fences and they drive go-karts in Fourth of July parades. It's an obsolete revolutionary movement. Blaming Freemasons is like blaming Anabaptists for what's going on now. That's another obsolete revolutionary movement. I have uh, Anabaptist friends, they're called Amish, and they live about 30 miles from here and they use raw milk. Okay, this is, a, a, this is a misunderstanding of the history of what went on. Uh, and it's an indictment, it's a, a kind of scandalous indictment of the 2,000 bishops who were there, who signed off on these documents, including Archbishop uh, Lefebvre, who signed off on Dignitatis Humanae. So it's, it's a, complete, uh, a, a complete misunderstanding of what happened, based on an ignorance of what really happened and an inability to make key philosophical distinctions between the documents and the superstructure that got erected upon these documents after the council was over. So would you accept that those documents were engineered by modernist bishops within the modernist council fathers who were looking to insert deliberate ambiguities in order to weaponize those ambiguities after the council and bring about the birth of a of a new religion and discount the church's claim to be the one true religion no i i, I disagree i disagree with that I, the intentions of one or two bishops cannot overturn the vigilance of two thousand other bishops and uh, let, let's start, let's get to specifics right now, okay? Was there an attempt to overturn church teaching at the Second Vatican Council? The answer is yes. It's clearly yes. And I'm going to give two specific examples uh, because we've, we've dealt with them uh, extensively at, at Culture Wars and Fidelity Press. So first, the first example, uh, the Jews. Okay, uh, the Jews uh, tried to take over uh, the Second Vatican Council document, Nostra Aetate, uh, through Cardinal Bea and his assistant, Malachi Martin. Okay, Malachi Martin was receiving payments from B'nai B'rith and the American Jewish Committee to basically subvert uh, Catholic teaching. The teaching in particular was the teaching that uh, the Jews killed Christ. The Jews didn't like that, I, I guess for obvious reasons, and they thought they could commandeer the council to, to, uh, to get the church to make that, uh, uh, dismiss that claim. They failed. 
Okay, this is an important issue here. They failed to do this. This is uh, uh, Monsignor Higgins, who was a malevolent figure here, who was working hand in glove with the Jews, stated at the end that they failed in what they tried to do, uh, largely because of the um, uh, intervention of Leo de Ponsin and uh, his revelation of what Jules Isaac was up to. The mind of the bishops was turned away. They would not approve this. They did not approve it, and it failed. The attempt of the Jews to do this failed. Uh, Malachi Martin failed in his mission, even though he'd been paid a lot of money by the Jews to subvert the document. Vigano evidently doesn't know that. He doesn't know anything about Nostritate, and the fact that he's talking about Freemasons is some indication in my mind that he's afraid to talk about the Jews because everyone is afraid to talk about the Jews and that's one of the major sequelae of the Vatican Council. Fear of the Jews has spread throughout the entire church up to this day. Okay? That's one. Second attempt. Uh, the CIA was heavily involved in an attempt to subvert the church's teaching on church and state. The man who was doing that was John Courtney Murray, another Jesuit. The Jesuits were up to their eyeballs in cultural subversion, so it's no, it should come as no surprise that they are the leading edge of homosexualism in the Catholic Church right now. Okay, They are a, a fifth column within the Catholic Church. They shouldn't be suppressed. Okay, Now, John Courtney Murray uh, worked with the CIA through Time Life, Time Magazine, Life Magazine. The publisher of that was Harry Luce, uh, probably the most powerful person in terms of information technology in the world at that time. Time Magazine was, in effect, the propaganda ministry for the regime. It was the propaganda ministry for uh, the CIA. And the key figure there was a man by the name of C.D. Jackson, a Jew. Uh, who uh, was on a full-time basis with the CIA and a full-time basis at Time Magazine. Complete overlap here in this man, uh, C.D. Jackson. Now, once again, this is what the intention was. We know what the intention of this group of people was. They wanted the church to approve the separation of church and state. The church did not do this. If you read Dignitatis Humanae, they did not do it. But the interpretation since the council has been pretty universal that the church, the perception being the church, did change its. its Wait a minute, I'm, I'm I'm still talking about the council here. Okay. Okay. So the document now the bet the document Dignitatis Humanae is a much better document than Nostratate, but uh, Nostratate uh, still restates the church's teaching. It says not all Jews at the time of Christ uh, were responsible for his death. That means, in some type of erratic fashion, that some Jews at the time of his death were responsible for uh, killing Christ. Uh, that was not the Blessed Mother. She did not cry, crucify him. So by a process of elimination, we can come to the traditional teaching. This brings us to the key issue here. Everything in the Second Vatican Council has to be interpreted in light of tradition. That is the hermeneutic. If you apply that, it succeeds. Okay? We don't have to throw out the, the, the council. Now, to get back to even more specific instance, I met with Bishop Williamson in Wimbledon uh, after uh, Ratzinger lifted the excommunications, walked in the door, and then 
his his excellency told me he had a letter on his desk upstairs that said i accept vatican ii in light of tradition which would have ended the schism at this point i said to his excellency then go up and sign it that's my whole point of coming here this we can talk about tennis after that well for the next three hours he explained to me why he could not sign that document, even though he admitted at this point that Archbishop Lefebvre would have signed that document. Okay, so this is part of the tragedy of the post-Vatican II Church, an inability to distinguish between the document and the heroic struggle that those 2,000 bishops engaged in, fighting two of the most powerful forces on earth, namely the CIA and organized Jewry, and coming up with a restatement uh, of traditional teaching. Now, back to Nostratate. There's a statement in there. It says, the church condemns uh, all forms of anti-Semitism. What does that mean? Does that mean that the church has to follow the Anti-Defamation League's definition of anti-Semitism? Well, that the statement is ambiguous. There's no question about it. And that's precisely why it needs to be interpreted in light of tradition. If that were done, we would know that anti-Semitism is a racial ideology, okay, that came into existence, the term came into existence in 1871, when Wilhelm Marr wrote his book, uh, Der Sieg des Judentums über das Germanentums, uh, in Germany. And we would know this is, the church has never held this position. The, never, the church has never held that some type of racial determinism existed at the time of Jesus Christ. All of those people had the same DNA, so this could not possibly apply. That, with that clarification being made, we would have to go on to say that the church is anti-Jewish. There is no doubt about it. And the whole problem we have right now is the inability of the church to distinguish between being anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish. No Christian, no Catholic can espouse anti-Semitism. I have said this repeatedly. No Catholic can deny that the church is anti-Jewish. All you have to do is read the Acts of the Apostles, the Gospel of St. John, and so on and so forth. So with all of those caveats, I think we can clarify the situation and come to some type of uh, ability to move forward out of the mess we're in right now. Cardinal Ratzinger, in Principles of Catholic Theology, said that regarding Gaudium et Spes, the Council's declaration or, or constitution on the Church in the modern world, he said, quote, we might say, in conjunction with the text on religious liberty in world religions, a revision of the syllabus of Pius IX, a kind of counter-syllabus. Let us be content to say here that the text serves as a counter-syllabus and as such represents on the part of the church an attempt at an official reconciliation with the new era inaugurated in 1789. Only from this perspective can we understand, on the other hand, the meaning of the remarkable meeting of the church and the world. Basically the world, world means the spirit of the modern era, in contrast to which the church's group conscious saw itself as a separate subject that now, after a war that had been in turn both hot and cold, was intent on dialogue and cooperation, end quote. What seems to be an attempt by Cardinal Ratzinger, a very uh, a deeper spirit, which is a dialogue with modern thought and an adaptation to this thought, which is found to 
be something of an antithesis of Catholicism because it is fundamentally hostile to all that is supernatural. Do you, do you see that, uh, that spirit of adaptation, a giornamento, uh, permeating the, the works of the Council? Yes, of course. No one can deny that. There's a, there's a better uh, statement of Rossinger, I think, uh, in 2005 when he addressed Curia and talked about uh, uh, America at the time. What, what was it like to be at the council? And we, he said, we discovered there, were, there was another enlightenment. There was the American enlightenment and the American revolution. And this was more congenial to, uh, un, to tradition, to uh, uh, the Catholic understanding of uh, whatever, you know, the church and state, whatever you want to talk about. Well, I, I'm not going to deny that. I think he's absolutely right. That's, that's the way he felt at that time. I can't deny that he felt that way. I think he was mistaken, okay, because I think what he's really talking about is he internalized the commands of his oppressors. He's basically talking about the American proposition as proposed by Time, Time Life and Harry Luce. And he saw it as some type of benign alternative to the French Revolution and its anti-clericalism. Yes, of course. Of course he did. Of course he did. Now, was he? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think uh, especially at this, the very moment when the CIA is working to overthrow the Catholic Church, when the CIA had been involved in uh, basically a campaign of Catholic, against the Catholic Church, when, when social engineering uh, under the auspices of the federal government were destroying Catholic neighborhoods in the United States of America, to think that the, the United States, the American Revolution or, or whatever its principles were, the American Enlightenment, were somehow benign, was naive. It was completely naive. But the question is, uh, is, is that naivete uh, embedded in the documents to the point where it commits some type of error? That's a different question, and I I think the answer is no, and I don't think you could I don't think you can impugn the goodwill of two thousand bishops uh, by saying that it is. Well, well these it are the bishops work. who then went home to their their diocese and implemented um, a liturgical, pastoral, catechetical revolution, which has resulted in the greatest collapse of the Catholic faith in history. That's, you're what talking, would be your account again, for that collapse? I'm, I'm saying you're engaging in post-talk ergo propter hoc thinking. And I'm saying that uh, just because it happened after the council doesn't mean it happened because of the council. Now, I'm not excluding the fact that you could use the council as a pretext. I'm just saying that right. the documents do not say what you're saying. But, but were they you, created what, to, to give that pretext? What, what, what is it about the documents that, that lends itself so easily to heretical interpretation? The interpreter. I think it's that simple. Right, but, but shouldn't shouldn't they have created documents that were that were more clear and and uh, didn't didn't I flirt think, with heterodoxy in the same way? I think that the documents are clear. I think especially I, I've already given you the worst example that I can see in Nostradate, which could be clarified by simply interpreting light of tradition. I think that Dignitatis Humani is is very clear. And I, and I don't, I think it's, uh, um, I think that there were people who were bent on using this as a pretext to overthrow Catholic teaching. But it's a pretext. It's not the thing itself. I mean, the end of Logos Rising, uh, my most recent book, uh, talks about the fate of Thomism. 
uh, during this period of time. You could say that uh, maybe the Vatican Council was riddled with anti-Thomist sentiment. Yeah. Probably, you know, this. I talked about this. The the uh, the Novel Theologie uh, c- criticized Thomism as being ahistoric. Uh, and there was something to what they said, even though I, I think that uh, you didn't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but that's precisely what happened. So at the end, end uh, the Second Vatican Council was used as a pretext by Ernan McMullen, who was chairman of the philosophy department at Notre Dame, and by Theodore Hesburgh to abandon Thomism. That was not in the documents of Vatican II. That was that was wicked men using Vatican II as a pretext, and I think we have to be able to make this distinction. It seems yeah, to be a, another one. One more point: uh, you mentioned liturgy. If you're going to talk about liturgical reform or revolution, it's not in Vatican II at all, at all. Uh, the man who's responsible for this in the United States of America was Rembert Weekland. He was the man got a degree from Juilliard, became Archbishop of uh, Milwaukee, and he hated the Catholic Church. He hated everything about the Catholic Church because he was a homosexual and ended up having to resign under a cloud because he paid, uh, 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 used church funds to play, play, pay blackmail payments to his boyfriend. Now, this is the man who's responsible for liturgical music and the wreckage that liturgical music was responsible for. You cannot trace that to Vatican II. What, what you do see is the Novus Ordo was promulgated in 1969 and it, it prompted the Ottaviani intervention. And what are your thoughts on that, which where, where Cardinal Ottaviani said that by a series of equivocations, the emphasis is obsessively placed upon the supper and the memorial instead of on the unbloody renewal of the sacrifice of Calvary, and that the three ends of the Mass are altered. No distinction is allowed to remain between divine and human sacrifice. Bread and wine are only spiritually, not substantially changed. The real presence of Christ is never alluded to, and belief in its in its implicitly repudiated. So that that so, was that was in response to a Latin Novus Ordo ad orientum. Right. What, does that mean? Does that mean the mass is invalid? No, but it it means it means that it's about what is more fitting worship of God. I think that's certainly debatable. And I, I can certainly see what the man was saying. And to be honest with you, uh, I think that Cardinal Ottaviani, now, Cardinal Ottaviani was the author of Vatican II. He was the spiritus movens behind Vatican II. Without Cardinal Ottaviani, there would have been no Vatican II because he's the one who went to John the Twenty-Third after the death of Pius the Twelfth and said the church is in a mess. We need to do something. Uh, too much power was concentrated in the hands of the Pope. Pius XII was suffering from dementia. The church was paralyzed. We have to do something. Also, the big threat on the horizon, according to Ottaviani, was not just the Soviet Union. It was the United States of America. And all of this comes out clearly in the preliminary documents, which I quote uh, in extenso in my book, John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution. I cover his role in the um, the role in the Vatican Council, the role that he played. Cardinal Kroll was the moderator. Uh, Cardinal Kroll uh, felt that his greatest achievement uh, at the Second Vatican Council was the three-minute rule. 
which is basically to limit people uh, interventions to three minutes. And so uh, he is the man who cut off Ottaviani's microphone. Right. Humiliating him in front of all of the council fathers. And uh, Kroll uh, regretted doing that because it was used uh, to discredit Ottaviani in a way that Kroll uh, did not intend, uh, even though he was, I'd have to say, too too stupid, too obtuse to understand what how that was going to be interpreted. So I think that Ottaviani is a, a leading figure. I think he was sidelined by people who were uh, interested on certain outcomes. I think if they had stayed with the preliminary documents, it would have been a better council. But mm-hmm. that doesn't turn what they did into uh, something that it is not. Okay. So, so you you espouse a hermeneutic of continuity, which is the interpretation advanced by uh, Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, men who both attended interreligious prayer meetings at Assisi. Would you see those meetings as uh, contiguous with a hermeneutic continuity and with the, Look, the true faith? Let's, let's cut to the heart here. Forget about Assisi. That was a one-off thing. You know, it could have been a mistake. Let's get to the heart of the problem. A mistake here. they never the apologized for. I understand that. But I, let's, I'm going to give you more ammunition than you, you, you would have with Assisi. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's get to Catholic-Jewish dialogue. Yeah, well, they, they, Pope is, Benedict said they, that the church has no institutional mission to the Jews. Right. I'm saying if you want to look for a break in continuity, you will find it in the Jewish question. It's there. It is de facto, there is discontinuity right now in the church because of a failure to address the discontinuity between what the gospel says and what the average bishop now says about the Jews. There is no way to reconcile these two things. They are discontinuous. This that, is, that's this not was, the only area where they, they depart from the true religion don't believe that the church's uh, baptism is necessary for salvation outside now, of the what, church's no salvation. Wait, wait, stop, 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 stop. They do believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. You, now, you I believe was, most bishops to, believe that today? Uh, I was got, they don't Cardinal seem to act Casper that way. showed up here at Notre Dame, and I tried to arrange an interview, uh, and the first question I was going to ask him is, is the Taufa Heil's notwendig. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Mm-hmm. Now, I wish I had had the chance. I didn't, unfortunately. He came, he pulled out at the last minute, probably because he looked up who I was. But uh, that is in the Bapti- that is in the German Catechism, the German translation of the Universal Catechism. So baptism is necessary for salvation. The Catechism states it clearly. There is no repudiation of that doctrine. But that doesn't mean the bishops adhere to it. That, of course it doesn't. Of course. Now, uh, Cardinal, the reason I was going to ask Cardinal Cosper is that he went to Boston, I believe, in 2002 and stated something in front of the Jews that clearly repudiated that statement. He espoused yeah. dual covenant theology. But that's Cardinal Casper's problem. That's not the problem of the universal church. You've got groups of... I'm saying this is a, a, a neuralgic spot in the church right now that has to be addressed. It has to be addressed because what you've had is basically 50 years of building on a non-existent foundation in Nostra Aetate, okay? That doesn't exist. You cannot trace these, these statements back to Nostra Aetate. 
Isn't there a deeper force at work here, a kind of Copernican revolution, a turn from theocentrism to anthropocentrism that puts man at the centre of things, not even the man of the natural law, a man with a primacy given to action over contemplation, which means democratic considerations taking precedence over divine revelation, pastoral strategy becoming more important than dogma, sociology replacing religion, the world counts for more than heaven. Is, Who is said it, that? That, Who said that? that was by a Frenchman called Jean Matitain in La Révolution Copernienne dans l'Église. If you're asking me, has there been a revolution in the church? I would say yes. But, but isn't it deeper me, than just the Jewish question? Is, isn't, it, isn't it a wider, well, it's a synthesis of all heresies, as St. Pius X said. It's, it's modernism. It's neo-modernism. It's a conformity to the world rather than, uh, than adherence to the, uh, the precepts of the church. If you're asking me, are there uh, people in the church who espouse that? I would say yes. I mean, I've spent, I've spent the last 40 years of my life battling Notre Dame University and the corruption in Catholic higher education. Of course, it's riddled with heresy. Yes. A Catholic education, higher education is a disaster an anti-Catholic force. It has been taken over by revolutionaries and it's being used as a weapon to destroy the church. Of course it is. You could say the same thing about the Jesuits. They are a fifth column within the Catholic Church. I'm sure that many Jesuits would espouse what you just said. Many of them were influenced by Teilhard de Chardin. They, they, that's basically the patron saint of the Jesuits right now. And there's this kind of process theology and uh, relativism that they've adopted. Of course, of course, that's true. I'm not going to deny that. But I think it's more pervasive than perhaps you give it credit. Wait, um, wait a minute. How pervasive do you want me? I spent 40 years talking about how it's all over the place, one place after another. I mean, I'm admitting that it's pervasive. I'm saying that you're, you're barking up the wrong tree if you say you have to throw out Vatican II and it's Freemasons who are behind it. That was Vigano's claim. I'm saying that's preposterous. That's wrong. And, the, and it's based on an ignorance of, his, of what actually happened. I think you do good work in engaging in dialogue with members of the so-called alt-right. And often you call them to conversion, which is a great witness. And and, and very laudable. However, you then say, uh, go to a local Catholic parish. You don't necessarily caveat that with the warning that in their local Novus Ordo Catholic parish, they may not encounter the Catholic religion. Uh, I sometimes say, if you have trouble, give me a call. If you have trouble. Now, I would say that there is a danger in what you're saying here. Because what you're saying is that the Catholic Church is no longer visible. There has to be a secret Catholic Church, and this is my problem with traditionalism. It's riddled with this schismatic spirit. It's riddled with schism. This is what this is my, why I tried to talk to Bishop Williamson. He he is possessed by this schismatic spirit. He can't even stay in union with the SSPX. Okay. Now let me get specific here. What am I talking about when I say the schismatic spirit? Uh, when Bishop Williamson says the church has tuberculosis and we cannot associate with the church because then we'll contract tuberculosis. Bishop Fele, who kicked him out of the SSPX, said the church has cancer. 
and if we associate with the church, we will contract cancer. Well, first of all, that's bad medical uh, uh, analogy, okay? But secondly, this is precisely the schismatic spirit that I'm talking about. What, am, what is it? It is the sin against charity. Fear of contamination leading to refusal to associate with the body of the church. That's what they're guilty of. And that's not the solution to the problems that have come about after Vatican II. Yes, I think we have to very carefully draw distinctions here. There, there is a false church, a counter church, and of course there is the visible Church of Christ. I like what Father Linus Clovis said when he said that these, the, the Church of Christ and the counter church subsist in the same liturgical and juridical space. Now, so, now wait, now wait, now wait. You're giving you're giving institutional reality to something that does not have it. Well, well Cardinal Casper is is a mem is it has institutional position, does he not? Pope Francis yeah, has ins is institutional not, position, not, and he he is not uh, the Pope of the Counter Church. There is no Counter Church. Okay, there is there is. There so are who, who are these heretics? There are individual heretics but there's no counter church they're not true there is the church it's infiltrated by wicked men it's always been it had wicked men uh, sometimes more in charge than other times but they are not a counter church that's false even though they act as a coordinated body for example at the synod and the family where they they acted cohesively to change the church's not only the church's sacramental discipline, but to actually sort of abnegate the sixth command. You, you, uh, don't, you don't see I, the, the German bishops' the, conferences acting in a in a counter church as a as a form of the counter church. I was at the uh, now I'm not sure which one you're referring to. I was at the synod. I think it, it was was the synod of the family or the synod on the laity. But anyway, it was 1985. Uh, I went to Rome and I was there. Before that, uh, the convened, they had a preliminary meeting here at St. Mary's College. It was a secret meeting, uh, but uh, Germain Grisey was there, uh, and he spilled the beans about what happened. Uh, and at that meeting, uh, Father Brian Hare, who was the lieutenant of Cardinal Bernadine, announced that uh, when it came to understanding human sexuality, uh, America had a superior understanding to the church. And it was their duty to implement this uh, this feeling within the church, uh, this this understanding within the church. And I think it eventuated in older girls, even though the synod voted it down. Ultimately, in, eventuated in older girls. Okay. Now that's that's pretty high up, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Cardinal Bernadine was the de facto leader of the uh, Catholic Church in America. Yeah. Uh, but is does that make it a counter church? I don't think so. I don't think it does. So, so what you're talking about is huge confusion and disorientation in the church today on a scale never before witnessed. Maybe the Aryan crisis, um, but but certainly on such a global scale. And you're saying that confusion has absolutely nothing to do with the the ambiguities within the texts of the council that that seem to initiate this yes. crisis. By yes. by their fruits you yes. shall know them, but. Yeah, you're you're saying absolutely nothing. That's your formulation, but I've already gone through my formulation. I'm saying that they're two different things, and I've already given you specific instances of issues that are bad statements 
like the one in Nostratate, that can be resolved very simply by being interpreted according to tradition. How do you think this crisis will be re resolved? Do you think that there will be a, a, a future council that solemnly anathematizes all the errors that have emerged at least since the Second Vatican Council? No, no probably not. Uh, that's not the way the church works. The church will simply do what I said. It will interpret Vatican II in light of tradition. It will not be cited. If they're bad, they will not be cited anymore, and the church will simply move on. That's that's what, uh, was it the Council of Constance? Uh, one of those, anyway. Uh, at a certain point, uh, it, it will just descend into uh, non-entity. It simply will not be cited. It will not become part of the living spirit of the church that moves forward. So what's your opinion on Pope Francis? The culmination of the spirit of Vatican II? I think you could, I think you could make that case. I think you could make that case. Uh, is, is he a heretic? Of, it's not for me to judge uh, whether the Pope is a heretic or not. It's a formal designation. Uh, he makes statements. I don't. I've said before that uh, the Vatican, uh, the Swiss Guard, is now armed with tranquilizer guns. Have you? Do you know this? Yes. Their job. Their job is to shoot the Pope whenever he gets on an airplane. Yeah. So what? What you have here is a man. Uh, it seems to have toned down lately, but a man who was just uh, kind of full of the the power that this uh, the office had. And would get on airplanes and just—I uh, I hate to use this expression—but he would shoot his mouth off, and, and then the Vatican would try and come back and try and uh, straighten that out and say how it really does uh, is consonant with Catholic tradition because of X, Y, and Z. Well, a, a lot of times it, it didn't seem that way even after the explanation came out. But I mean, you have to make a distinction here between a man who is impulsive and prone to shooting his mouth off on airplanes and someone who is promoting formal heresy as for example to get get back to the Arian crisis a great example I mean uh, uh, it's going to be a new chapter in the Jewish revolutionary because I think that applies to that crisis Newman had great things to say about the role the Jews played in supporting Ari the Arian heresy and so on and so forth but it never came to something like uh, Ari is saying that uh, Jesus Christ uh, was that which was not. So when... It never came to that formulation, something specific like that. So, so when um, Pope Francis uh, promulgates the apostolic exhortation of Morris Letizia with the infamous footnote which seems to grant the ability of couples living in sin access to the Holy Sacrament, and then different bishops' conferences interpret that differently across the world. And the Argentines' bishops' conference allow for couples uh, breaking the Sixth Commandment to receive Holy Communion. Pope Francis sends a letter to uh, the Argentines' bishops' conference saying that is the only interpretation of Amoris Laetitia, that is the only correct interpretation of Amoris Laetitia. That, that doesn't amount to material heresy. Not not just an impulsive moment on a plane, but actually signing that. That's obvi obviously that's more than an impulsive moment on the plane. You're absolutely right, 
And uh, the cardinal, there were four cardinals who expressed dubia about the, about the footnotes. And uh, so the question is, is the Pope's interpretation of that footnote infallible? Yeah. Or is he expressing an opinion? And has he gone on and say ex cathedra that my opinion here is infallible? Uh, I, it, it's going to, it will pass. It's going to pass. You know, the, the dogs bark, but the caravan moves on. And I think that's what's going to happen here. If, if it's wrong, it will not be accepted. And the, of course, it's going to cause confusion in the meantime. Uh, but, but what's the point? Let, let's, get, let's get to the point here. I've, the end, when I, when I was in, uh, at Wimbledon, after spending those hours talking to Bishop Williamson, uh, the whole head of the uh, English SSPX showed up and they gave a little lecture. And the end of the lecture was the talk, the speech about uh, the parable about uh, Christ in the boat. Uh, and I said, uh, this boat is the church. And the church is always going to be tossed about by storms. And when you're full of panic and fear in a storm, the tendency is to jump out. And I said, that means instant death. I mean, it should be obvious what I'm talking about here. I was talking to them. You know, if you leave the church in a moment of crisis, you're making the situation worse. So when the, when the, storm, when the storms are tossing the church about like that, you simply have to wait until Jesus Christ wakes up and calms the storm. That's it. This is not going to be any, there's not going to be any definitive statement until that happens. And then the church will right itself, the boat will right itself, and that will continue to sail. So I, I think it's fair to say we're going through a moment like that. It, it couldn't be part of God's providential care for his bride that you have the priestly society of uh, St. Pius X to actually point out at least the serious problems with the text of Vatican II uh, in order to keep that pressure up on the institutional church to address those serious ambiguities. Sure, they can do that service, and they can also commit sin, in, and they committed the sin of schism when Archbishop Lefebvre ordained, uh, consecrated those bishops. So sure, you're right. They could have a legitimate role as, uh, they, could ha they could say things that are certainly true about the church right now, but that wouldn't change the fact that they are in schism, and this is not the proper way to go about uh, resolving those issues. Uh, even since the the lifting of the excommunications by Pope Benedict of the the surviving bishops, Bishop Schneider has been clear that they're not. He said they're not in schism; they're in an irregular canonical situation. <laughs> if you can get a clear answer from the church today, God bless you. I mean, right. isn't that part of the problem? Uh, I know what my clear answer is. No, I'm saying from the church. I know I've written a book, and my answer is pretty clear about. Uh, and a lot of documentation yeah. about this hoax. It's clearly a hoax. But what is the church doing other, I mean, by Rome, the Vatican, Pope Francis, what are they doing but muddying the waters now by sending this Polish bishop over there to talk about taking care of pilgrims when you still haven't ascertained whether it's a hoax or not? And what about the actual authority there, uh, Bishop Perich? Why didn't you talk to him? Why didn't Archbishop Hoser talk to him when he went there? This is a, a, a catastrophe. 
in terms of getting clear answers. You're getting clear answers now. But the conciliar church doesn't look for clear answers because then it would have to affirm as soon the truth as, as of Christ. Soon as, you say, as soon as you say the conciliar church, you're going down a rabbit hole uh, where the conclusion is already programmed into the, the statement that you're trying to make. Okay? That's a tendentious claim. We're, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the conciliar church. I'm talking about the church. There is no conciliar church. It's the church. And if you use terms like that, you're just going to spread confusion. And you're not helping that 20-year-old who's addicted to masturbation and pornography by talking this way. Yes, but the, I don't think the Pope is helping that situation either when he's blessing you know, couples say, living I together. I didn't say he was. Yeah. I'm trying to make I'm trying to make the best of a bad situation. I have I have a, a, a I used to speak for at a symposium run by a woman uh, who would not refuse to invite me back because I told these twenty year olds to go to the local Catholic church and get baptized. Now that's that's an outrageous abuse. That's an outrageous example of static thinking that has not going to do anyone any good. Yeah. Yeah, of course, there there is tremendous confusion here. But look, I see these people, we're, all, we're victims of the, you know, the enemies of the modernists who, who created this, this diabolical disorientation and allowed the smoke of Satan to enter the church, as Paul VI said. So, you know, let's, let's not lose sight of who's responsible for this. The historian Charles Coulomb said that in some ways you could say that the uh, Vatican II represents the American captivity of the church. And John Rowell said that Americanism has entered into the wider church. Um, you can see that in union with related vitalist visions. The notion of avoiding doctrinal issues for purely pastoral concerns is something an Americanist suspicious of ideas would want. The subtle transformation of a non-doctrinal synod into the only doctrinal council, a force for developing a democratic, pluralist, truly oppressive institution, is something that a student of Americanism could have predicted. So was the insistence on separation of church and state. Efforts since the council to minimize Catholicism by integrating Marxist, capitalist, feminist and homosexual ideas into the body of faith are all vivid signs of the pressure of Americanism. The most certain indication of this presence is the boredom and the childishness of much of what passes for Catholic life since the 1960s. How could Americanism not triumph when the very centres of the universal church reflect its wishes? Reflect its wishes and yet deny that they do so at one and the same time. Well, it didn't seem that uh, Pope Benedict was denying that they, they did so in that uh, Christmas address to the Curie in 2005. Uh, how can the American Revolution be reconciled? How can the first the first uh, amendment to the Constitution be reconciled with the social reign of Christ the King? It can't. If every if everyone uh, if every traditionalist were as reasonable as John Rao, I would have no problem w resolving these issues. To get back to the first, uh, so yes, I agree. Americanism is the problem. It's in the pro it's a problem in the church right now. There's no question about it. That's why Time Life called uh, Ratzinger the first American pope. Uh, but to say, once again, as Mr. Colomb said, uh, to, to trace this back to Vatican II is wrong. It's just flat out wrong. Because the one crucial repudiated Americanism, and that's Dignitatis Humanae, which had the whole force of Time Life and the CIA behind it, and the church 
those 2,000 bishops still resisted that and affirmed traditional teaching. Okay. So it's false to say that. It's false to trace it back to Vatican II, even though it exists. Thank you. You said that Fidelity magazine was a consciously counter-revolutionary magazine when you founded it. What do you understand by counter-revolution? Uh, at that particular point, probably counter-sexual revolution. That's, that, that was the thing on my mind. That was the first real issue that I dealt with because I had been fired for uh, opposing abortion from a Catholic college, and that led me to the whole, uh, you know, understanding the connection between, between Hesburg and the Rockefellers and the, the attempt to overturn the church's teaching on contraception and so on and so forth. So if, it, if a counter-revolution at that time probably meant uh, counter-sexual revolution. At, I began to expand from that to the point where I got to uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, in which I think we come to the heart of the revolutionary movement in human history, and it's the Jews. And it's the Jewish uh, hatred of Logos and the Jew Jewish attempt to murder Logos, crucifying Christ. So at that point, it became a larger issue, and then Logos Rising was supposed to talk about the other side of human history, where uh, the uh, idea of Logos prevails over uh, the Jewish attempt to promote revolution as anti-Logos. One of the most destructive revolutions in history was the French Revolution. In what way was that a manifestation of the Jewish revolutionary spirit? It seems that it was very little to choose. It was... Uh, other secret societies, the Freemasonic lodges, the Illuminati, the the forces of Gallicanism and Jansenism within the church, the Huguenots, the Whigs in England, uh, lots of converging forces, but not the Jews. Right. That is the position I take in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, that basically the French Revolution was created by uh, the weaponization, uh, the Whig weaponization of Masonic lodges, uh, which were used to overthrow the Bourbon monarchy. Now, when you get into the Illuminati, uh, you're talking about Barrowell's uh, history of uh, memoirs toward the history of Jacobinism, and I think Barrowell is wrong. He's flat out wrong about the, the Illuminati was an actual group of people, but it could not have done what he said it did. It was impossible. It just could not have done it. And he, I think he pointed the finger at the Illuminati because he wanted to let the, let the Whigs off the hook because it was Burke and the Rockingham Whigs that gave him political asylum. And he did not want to uh, 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 bite the hand that fed him. He didn't want to appear to be ungrateful. But toward the end of that period, there was the so-called Simonini letter. And Barrowell, uh, a letter by a man named Simonini, who said that the Jews were behind, supported the Freemason, the, the Masons, and so on and so forth. And Barrowell suppressed that letter. Well, shame on him for doing that. That's not the job of a historian, because he didn't want a reaction to take place against the Jews. So the Jews were there, but it, they were not, let's say, the, not the driving force behind the revolution in the way that Jews were the driving horse force behind the Bolshevik Revolution, and Russian Revolution, and Bolshevism uh, in 1917. You once said that, and this was in 2011, I believe, to Michael Voris, you said, we don't have liberal revolutionary bishops, we have neocon bishops. What did you mean by that, and do you think that we still have neocon bishops? 
Uh, the last neocon bishop was uh, Archbishop Chaput. Uh, neoconservatism is completely dead as a political movement. Completely dead. It's an obsolete political movement, like uh, an obsolete revolutionary movement, baptism and Freemasonry. It's gone. It's over. And what you have, and the man who killed it was Pope Francis, who hated uh, Archbishop Chaput. I hope that's not pointing it too, saying it too broadly. Uh, uh, Pope. Pope Francis and Donald Trump combined to destroy conservatism. And so uh, a figure like Robbie George uh, and other figures uh, in the church have uh, very, very little influence anymore. How would you characterize the, the current episcopacy? They, they are still unwilling uh, to confront the revolution and the ills of modernity. And you can see, yeah, that. it's 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 a it was a liberal reaction to Ratzinger. I think that's what it was, because Ratzinger just got too close. He just he just there was there was just there was no daylight, to, or to, was this way, too little daylight between the church and the American Empire. When Pope Francis was uh, appointed, I saw I, I helped. I thought there would be a, a a window of opportunity here for the church to disconnect itself from the American empire because of the relationship that had grown up during the anti-communist crusade. Uh, the culmination of that was uh, Pope John Paul II, much too close. I think that he regretted that collaboration to bring down communism at the end because there were more negative consequences than he anticipated. So there, a, a change was right, but instead of getting a real change, which is what I hope for, which is why I proposed getting, let's back up here. When, shortly after he was appointed, I went and met with a Heschel at the Vatican, and I said there are three areas where the church is not proclaiming the gospel. The Jews, church-state relations, and usury. So he said to me, forget the Jews. those are the only areas the church isn't proclaiming the gospel today? Those are the only areas? I said... I said three main areas. I didn't say the only areas. I said the three main areas. Okay? And uh, so he said, forget it. This pope is never going to criticize the Jews. that uh, Didn't know any, understand the situation with church and state. But he did uh, ask me for something on usury. I gave it to him. And that ended up in uh, Laudate Si. So that was the kind of hopefulness that I had at that point. Well, it turns out that it, it just turned, it, you got retreaded liberal Jesuit 60s theology and, and you uh, a return to the vomit of liberalism after there's there a reason that that had been repudiated by this turn to conservatism now you're jumping over conservatism which was not a healthy reaction back to the vomit that caused conservatism in the first place it's a disaster there's no clear thinking there's no depth here no ability to understand uh, the tradition in, in its roots, in its metaphysical form, and taking that and applying it to, this, to the signs of the times and moving forward. Just not there. Is it that they are unwilling to apply the, the power of the, the, the intellect illumined by faith to the issue, or is it that they don't possess the supernatural virtue of faith? Now, how am I supposed to say that? How well, am I supposed get, to tell, by their fruits, tell some, shall know some, some archbishop, you know, your excellency, you do not possess the supernatural gift of faith. Isn't that a, wouldn't that be a little bit presumptuous of me to say something like that? 
No, I'm not saying that you should say that, but I th I think there's plenty of evidence that would incline us to to arrive at that conclusion. I don't think th I don't think there's enough consciousness here to arrive at that conclusion. I mean, let, let me let me give, let me give you an example. Even after 40 years of of ecumenism, of religious indifferentism, of the destruction of every part well, of Catholic life. Name a name. And I'll, and well, I'll John, maybe... John Paul II at the Assisi meetings where they put a statue of Buddha on the altar of San Pietro. This, the, the harping on this thing is not, it was a one-off thing. That... Okay, well, in 2003, when Pope John Paul II said uh, in a visit to Syria, he asked for the intercession of John the Baptist to protect Islam. Again, again, I don't know. I don't, you, can, you can spin that however you want. Uh, I, I, I think that the, the main the main problem with Pope John Paul II was his his closeness with the American Empire and their the, his desire his really uh, excessive desire to to see the demise of communism led him into an uh, an unhealthy alliance with America with the American Empire that was the problem and it it, it came from the conservative side rather than from the liberal side. So you had uh, this confluence. You have the liberal Americanism of Brian Hare, which I've already mentioned, and Carl Bernadine, who feel that the church has a superior understanding of, uh, I mean, the, the America has a superior understanding of sexuality. And then you've got the conservative aspect of it, where they're fighting communism, and you put those two but things that, that's together. That's not conservatism. It's a, it's a that's, just, that's just a, mo a more moderate form of liberalism. It's not true What's conservatism. That? The conservatism of people like George Weigel or even Pope Benedict. Right. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. So, what yes, would you I... say to someone who says that your the reason for your defence of Vatican II is because of your involvement with Opus Dei? Some someone like Randy. <laughs> this is ludicrous. Are, are you talking to Randy Engel? Randy, I'm not involved in Opus Dei. I don't know what I have to tell this crazy lady from Western Pennsylvania. How many times can I say this? I am not involved with Opus Dei. I have a close friend in Opus Dei. Opus Dei wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. Why would they want somebody like me in their organization? Well, it is a, a secret society. It, the members are not meant to divulge their membership. Well, it must be great minds running the same circles, I guess. Because I, I'm telling you flat out, I am not in Opus Day. I have friends in Opus Day. Are you telling me, Randy, can you give me a list of people I'm allowed to associate with? I can't have a friend because he's in Opus Day. This is ridiculous. Michael Voris and I have a mutual friend in Opus Day, And he gave Michael Voris a lot of money. Okay? And at that point, Michael Voris uh, gave him money before Michael Voris admitted that he was a homosexual. John, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, every institution is the length and shadow of one man. And Church Militant is the length and shadow of Michael Voris, who uh, should not be doing what he's doing. Okay, someone with a past that was, uh, someone who was so deeply involved in the homosexual lifestyle is a wounded character who should not be putting himself forward as a spokesman for the Catholic Church. I said this in a book uh, called uh, The Man Behind the Curtain. It's no secret that that's the way I feel. Yes. Has the American experiment in ordered liberty failed? Of course it has. Yeah. Of course it has. And how would you 
characterize this epoch that we live in? Would you call it late modernity, post-modernity, hyper-modernity, and, and how would you describe it? We are watching the end of the American empire. Uh, we are in a revolutionary movement right now in which the oligarchs and their proxy warriors like uh, Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter are trying to overthrow the government. Uh, they talk about uh, Donald Trump as the government. They are clearly trying to overthrow the government. Uh, they did overthrow the government uh, in uh, Seattle, where the mayor uh, is uh, the lesbian mayor, Notre Dame graduates. They handed over a large section to, of Seattle to a group of criminals who then murdered a few people. And then finally she had to restore order. So we're in the middle of a revolutionary moment. And that, that revolutionary moment intends, among things, to prevent the re-election of President Trump. But it seems that no matter what the devil tries at the moment, the, the pandemic and its it, government effects and then the proton, the coordinated riots after the George, uh, George Floyd's death, that none of it actually seems to be working in, in shifting deep public opinion. Do you think that's true? Well, this is the way God moves in history. It's called the cunning of reason. If, if the Democrats thought that people were going to rush out and vote for them after watching the lesbian mayor of Seattle uh, tell the police to stand down and the lesbian mayor of Chicago to telling the police to stand down and the lesbian attorney general of Michigan locking people down, they're crazy. This is all going to uh, line people up on the Republican side of, of the polls. Nevertheless, we do have a society that is growing more and more morally depraved each day, it seems. And the, the, the sexual revolution kind of penetrates new abysses. Most people have accepted the precepts of that revolution, which, apart from anything else, guarantee that the generations, the population doesn't replenish itself, absent mass immigration. So how do you see... Um, Western civilization surviving, uh, being the first civilization to survive without explicit religious belief and without endowing meaning in people's lives. It will not survive. It's not surviving. It's collapsing. And I'm saying we have to return to tradition. This is the whole point of the book on Logos. That is the heart of whatever you want to call it. It's not heart of the Western tradition certainly the heart of the Western tradition. And we have to return to that. We have to repudiate atheism. We have to repudiate Darwinism. We have to repudiate sexual liberation as a form of control. We have to repudiate all these things. And the only way we can do it is by returning to Logos. Uh, and, and the Logos is the Catholic Church. As what? The Logos is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the cutting edge of Logos in human history. The Logos is God, that's, and the Logos incarnate and, is and Christ. the continuation of Christ's presence on earth. That's right. That's what the book is about. So in a sense, the incarnation does change everything, but the incarnation does not change everything. Because St. John wrote that gospel in Greek. And he chose words that had a history in Greek philosophy, and they were incorporated into Christianity. So Christianity was not a repudiation of Greek philosophy. It was a purification of Greek philosophy. Yeah. In the last year, that's found a Pew Research poll that one-third of U.S. Catholics believe in the real presence 
What would be your account for that truly devastating statistic, if true? Bad education. Bad education or false education? Well, what's the difference? Well, one is done willfully. The other makes it seem accidental. Well, uh, the, don't underestimate the value of stupidity or the force of stupidity in, in wrecking education. Uh, of course, there are wicked men. Uh, look, I've, I've been the whole thing with Notre Dame. I mean, I spent a lot of time. I started off as an educational reformer. That was yeah. my, I, I had a very modest goal here. And then I started to realize it's bigger and bigger and bigger. Every time I look into it, it gets bigger and more widespread. But the root of it, the, let's go back to Seattle. Why is Jenny a lesbian? Well, probably because she went to Notre Dame uh, and graduated in 1980, and they just completely obliterated any sense of natural law uh, in her life. You know, uh, why are so why is there's a girl? Of, I don't really saw this video, but there's a girl. She looks to be about in her 20s, and some guy comes up to her and says, uh, "I'm from Black Lives Matter. Kneel down." Well, she knelt down, and then he says, "I want you to apologize," and she apologized. What are we talking about here? Why didn't she call the cops? Why didn't she hit them with her pocketbook or something like that? But because of bad education, because she's taught to internalize the commands of her oppressors, because the only education you get in this country is basically a glorification of the civil rights movement, which is basically holding the law in contempt, holding the natural law in contempt, and feeling that you're some type of superior being uh, uh, because of what? because of nothing. So don't underpower a bad education. I think this got us into the mess we're in today. And that, that's also the, just the continuation of the spirit of the Ameri American Revolution. You are a nation born in revolution. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, that uh, there, there was an attempt. I mean, there was a Catholic infusion into this population mm. that could have ameliorated that that could have redeemed it in the same way that St. John redeemed Greek philosophy, and it didn't happen. I mean, in Logos Rising, I talk about the Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain coming over here, being sponsored by the University of Chicago and Harvard University, because these were Americans who realized, this is all superficial crap that we're calling philosophy, pra pragmatism, whatever it is. It's just ridiculous compared to the depth of Thomism, and they were... They almost did it and it didn't happen so America had these periodic moments where they could have it could have redeemed itself and it just didn't and now we're in the mess we're in because all of those bad things happened are you a monarchist dr. Jones no 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 why would I, why would an American ever be a monarchist we never had a king here well, you in did, America, but you revolted against him unjustly. In America, the law is king. That's your 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 man, Thomas Paine. He was an Englishman who came over here and was a rabble rouser. Uh, we've well, never had a king, so what? Saint Thomas Aquinas advocated uh, a monarchy. He advocated advocated an Aristotelian mixed regime, a, a form which, in a sense, you have in America: the president replacement for the monarch, and the Senate for the aristocracy, and then form of democracy right but nevertheless the uh, Balzac said that when they cut off the head of uh, King Louis they cut off the head of all the fathers in the country there I, look I, I think the French should have a monarch I just bought a copy of Balzac's Les Ch Chouin uh, about his novel about the Valais. 
I'm going to be speaking to those people uh, at some time soon. Uh, I, agree. I I think that you're talking about two completely different situations, and you have to accept but the reality of isn't America. Isn't that a form of American you... exceptionalism? Why, why shouldn't you have a, a father of the nation just as in Christendom has had historically? Uh, because we're Americans? But what, what I, I is mean, an American? I, question. Good question. We this. I, I did my doctoral dissertation, or I'm a. I have a PhD in American literature, and that's precisely the question that kind of haunted the 19th century in America. And I'm saying that we came up with a viable uh, modus uh, vivendi, a modus operandi, closest we came as the 1930s with the America First movement, uh, when the Catholic Church was strong, when the Catholic Church would reign in the Jews in Hollywood, for example. So I think it, it, it was possible to come up with some type of modus vivendi, and it, it just a tragedy of human history is all these initiatives were strangled in their cradle, one way or the other. But earlier you said that the, the current collapse of the American experiment is expressly because of the First Amendment, but now you're saying they could have been a modus vivendi. They seem like... No, I, 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 I don't think I said that. Well, I think what I was trying to say is that the Church should not adopt the First Amendment as a Catholic principle. That was the whole battle over dignitatis humani. That would be wrong, okay? But in terms of the form of government, you can't impose an alien form of government or because the people have a certain character. The nation has a certain character, and it's just not going to work in America, whereas I think it could it, it could work. In, it did work in France. I mean, the whole battle over... The statue of Leo the Ninth is an indication that it did work in France and probably could work again. Transformative effects of sanctifying grace, a truly evangelized America, where sanctifying grace was able to to work, could in have a much more natural form of government, a much better form of government for the common good. It might not be likely, but it should certainly be what American Catholics aim for. If, if you're saying that uh, America should abandon the separation of church and state and install the Catholic Church as the established religion, I would agree with you. I think that America would be a better place if that, were, if that happened. That is not the same as monarchy. That's not the same thing. But what you do see is the moment that monarchs in Christendom were overthrown is also the moment where you see the Catholic faith dethroned as the the public religion so you're just saying that's a coincidence that those two moments Look, the church has always associated itself with a particular form of government to its detriment Group but heaven's a monarchy that the family is a monarchy it's not about a safe form of government it's just about recognizing what's natural and good and what glorifies god uh you're using an analogy here you're using an analogy, and the analogy always breaks down at a certain point. Because what we're talking about is three orders of being here. You're talking about the family and the government and heaven, uh, which are three different things. And yeah. it breaks down when you start to use analogies. I have a whole chapter on Hegel's rising and why his updating, though it was a kind of noble project, right. why it failed. But, but very important to revolutionary for example, well, Marx. as soon as as soon as Hegel, uh, the dialectic was Hegel's reading of the Trinity. Yeah. And as soon and as soon as he made the second person of the Trinity, the negation of the first person of the Trinity, 
he created a dialectic that existed without God, because yeah. there can be no negation in God. And Feuerbach was one of his pupils and he said, wrote to Hegel, uh, said, look, you don't need God to have the dialectic work. And that was the beginning of materialism. And uh, Karl Marx picked it up from Feuerbach and the rest is history. Hmm. Very interesting. Dr. Jones, I've uh, very much enjoyed our robust discussion tonight. Yes, I think that would be very valuable for, for our listeners. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for all the work thank that you, you do. Thank you. My pleasure. It was a really good discussion. I think we got a lot of things out in the open that needed to be discussed, needed to be aired. I agree. I agree. And actually, you've helped with my own intellectual formation on this issue as well, um, which is uh, something I'm going to reflect on. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. God bless. Dr. Send James. me the link. Will do. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye.